Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. This is episode 70 of the show. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined as always by Ben Badler. Uh, it is December 7th as we record this podcast. And Ben, we have we have wrapped up the winter meetings. We've had a few things happen. We've had the draft lottery. Uh, we, we finally had the, the Juan Soto trade go down and be official. We had the Rule 5 draft. So there's a lot of stuff that's happened in the baseball world. Um, how are you? How are you holding up? And, and what are your thoughts on all the uh, the movement of this last week? Yeah, John Soto is a Yankee. How about yeah, that? Yeah, he is. Um, Imagine that. Yeah, it's not it's not like the winter meetings used to be, where there used to be a like a mm. flurry of transactions. I don't think there needs to be really anymore. So, so but... when do you think is the last time the winter meetings actually were a flurry of transactions? Because I feel like it, the annual critique is that the winter meetings are boring now, and it just seems like it's been like that. Like I, I can't remember the last time there was a fun winter meetings in terms of a lot of transactions. Um, but maybe we can just blame that on Shohei Otani and, and move on. I think I think Shohei Otani is what's wrong with baseball at this point. We just don't really – the winter meetings are important to happen for other reasons, but you don't really need to have them anymore to be able to – for the purpose of bringing together executives from across the league to be able to communicate in person to facilitate transactions. Um, so I guess now the draft lottery is really the star of the show. I think at the <laughs> it's draft meetings. lottery and it's rule five draft. So take your pick. How much of a baseball nerd do you want to be? Uh, and how confused do you want to be? Uh, we'll probably determine which of those you pick or, or if you like them at all. But I really enjoy the draft lottery, to be honest. I think the broadcast is exceptionally rushed. Um, but but I have a blast just finally getting to know what the draft order is. And this year was obviously a lot crazier than the initial draft lottery we had uh the guardians get the number one overall pick um their odds to move up and actually get that pick prior were uh two percent and then the reds were also a big winner of the draft lottery they move up from 14 under the initial or, or the old uh, way of of doing the the draft order they had a 0.9 percent chance of getting the number one pick so it's all ohio at the top for the 2024 draft um yeah we can kind of run down the actual order and, and any notable teams the process like how it works how it's broadcast but it's annually like a very fun event on the calendar for me i'd say prior to the draft lottery i, I kind of just like followed along the winter meetings uh, more as just like a fan of baseball, but I'm I'm certainly invested in the draft lottery. What, what are your thoughts on like how it's presented? Because I know when I was watching it and keeping up with it, uh, I think it was around when we got to seven or eight teams that were seven, like when the Angels were announced with the eighth pick, the Cardinals seventh. I was like, oh, I haven't seen the Mets yet. I know they had the seventh best odds to get into the lottery and get the number one pick. I guess they're in, but I didn't. I couldn't like in real time factor i had missed that we had three playoff teams already in the 18 which which meant that all three of those teams with 10 spot penalties they didn't get inside the lottery and we also had teams that moved up ahead of the mets like i, I just couldn't do all of that math in my head as i was watching it and there's so many logistics that that need to be explained in the show that it really feels like there's no time to actually see how it's unfolding what are your thoughts on it yeah i don't need it to be stretched out and to hear more about you know Brad Paisley's upcoming album or whatever. Their yeah, that's just that they like, need to we could have had five minutes actually gone towards the draft lottery and we have Brad Paisley talking about a completely unrelated album, which well, I was not a fan of. Like I get it's in Nashville, but whatever. Well, I'm sure there was some money 
probably exchanging hands there for get the <laughs> content on there for him. But um, yeah, I mean, I think as much as as much as we love this stuff, and probably most of the people who are listening right now care about the draft lottery and the mechanics of it. The reality of it is that we are in the minority and we are at the extreme end of that scale. Yeah. The the way the system is set up, like I don't have a huge issue with it, but there are fans who want to be able to follow the lottery process as it unfolds. Mm. And the way it's set up is highly convoluted. It's not intuitive to understand. You could even see that on the broadcast where I think even they didn't have like a full grasp of what was going on. So it made it difficult probably for them to present it. I can't, I can't say that it lacks transparency because they do explain it Mm. and you can read JJ's story about it where he sounds like Charlie day in front of the bulletin board, (laughs) but it, it still took me like several takes just to understand after reading that, what was happening and I'm still not certain I have it a hundred percent. Yeah. I remember. So each, both years they've had JJ come in and almost be like an, an arbiter of truth here and add to the transparency of the process. So he's like actually breaking down exactly what happens. And I remember last year reading the process of the ping pong balls and the number combinations, like it's super confusing when you read through it. And I'm like, what? I don't really understand all this. I don't, I don't really get odds. Like I, I didn't get into baseball writing cause I liked math in the first place. And the draft all of a sudden has a lot of math elements all throughout, but JJ's story is and, cool. And the- do-overs. Like, <laughs> I think when people say they did a do-over of the lottery, mm. like what? Well, this is kind of so, – so let's talk about this. Tech, we, we've had a couple stories breaking down how the Nationals were technically picked first, um, but all along they were never going to pick uh, before number 10 overall – because they are revenue payer um, in, in baseball's financial system, they are not allowed to have back-to-back lottery picks. And so because they had a lottery pick in the 2023 draft, that means they're ineligible to receive one uh, in the next year. And the earliest that a revenue paying team can pick is 10th, uh, which is where they're going to be picking. But because of that and because of the odds, uh, the, the odds this year were different from a year ago because a year ago there were 18 teams that all had various odds for the number one pick. This year, because the Nationals were removed from that, their odds that they would have received uh, were distributed to all of the other teams. So that meant that the odds themselves were different, which was confusing to people. I think I was listening to some podcasts, just general baseball podcasts, and there were people who are like following the league regularly that didn't realize that the odds were different. I mean, we've had the odds on the site for a few months now, um, but that in and of itself was confusing. And the way they decided to do the actual ping pong balls in the lottery is it was just simpler. It sounded like for them to keep the nationals in. uh, And then if they're actually picked, which they were first overall, and then they were picked again later, they would just basically say, this is not, this this result doesn't count. The Nationals can't win a pick, so we'll, we'll, do, we'll do the ping pong balls again, and then the next team is actually who wins. So there were a lot of Nationals fans, I think, on Twitter that were a, a bit upset that they were scammed in this sense, but like if you entered the lottery just knowing that you're not eligible, I, I don't think you have much um, to be annoyed with. I think Oakland A's fans just given how the lottery has worked for them for back-to-back years now, have have much more to be upset about. Um, 
But well, I also I think, I think the Nationals fans are probably annoyed in the sense that hey, if if there weren't different rules for revenue sharing teams versus mm-hmm. revenue paying teams, yeah, if if or if it was at least two years for both, then mm-hmm. we would be having the number one overall pick this year. Sure, yeah, but you you knew you were not eligible going into this, so I I don't right. really get the sour grapes. If if you think that like revenue paying teams shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't have an extreme penalty compared to the revenue receiving teams like the A's. Like I get that argument. I, I probably would agree with you. I think that I, I don't really want to penalize the teams that are spending money and, and trying to be more competitive more than the teams that just aren't putting a competitive product on the field and aren't investing in their big league team. I would rather every team be treated the same. Whereas if you, if you don't want a team picking continuously top six, which I think was kind of the point in the draft lottery in the first place, I would rather it just apply to everyone across the board, but I mean, it's baseball. I think the, the the teams that cry poor most often always find ways to sort of uh, set themselves up for for a little bit of an edge in this regard, and that's certainly what what we deal with now. Um, but in general, I think the lottery is. I, I think it will be beneficial in deterring teams from tanking, which we've talked about. I don't think it's good for the game. It's not certainly not good for. Orioles fans um, five, ten years ago to go through just bottoming out for no reason. Like, it makes sense strategically. It's clearly panned out, and it's worked well. Um, But I think if you have to actually go through, go in other directions to rebuild your team and and rebuild on the move, really, without bottoming out, I think that's much more beneficial. And I also just like the fact that we get teams like the Guardians and the Reds, who are good, like, just randomly lucking into a top pick, like... This is the first time the Guardians will have ever picked number one at the top of the draft. Uh, maybe it's a little bit of, of karma because a long time ago uh, in the 70s and 80s, uh, they would have had a chance for the number one pick. But it was back when the American League and the National League alternated for number one overall picks. So there are a few times when they were the worst team in the league and got number two. So I thought it was cool just to see that. It'll be it'll be interesting to see how Cleveland operates at the top of the draft, just given how they've operated in the middle and the back third of the draft. Um yeah, so I, I kind of like it in general. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Orioles. They put an awful product on the field for years, and they were rewarded for it with yep. Adley Rushman, with Jackson Holiday, and a bunch of other high draft picks in bonus pool advantages. They were tanking. Now, it, it was a smart strategy given the rules that were in place at the time, right? Like, show me the, show me the incentives or say the outcome. <laughs> Uh, rest in peace, Charlie Munger. Like, you know, you, you reward a team with the worst record in baseball by giving them access to some of the most valuable young players in baseball who you pay a well below market, uh, you know, open market signing bonus and then control for six plus seasons with three years at a league minimum salary and the rest at a discounted rate. And you're incentivizing teams to lose as badly as possible while they are rebuilding. So the Orioles were smart for doing what they did and they drafted well, obviously outside of just their top picks too. And and they've made other smart decisions to become the hundred plus win team uh, where they're at right now. But uh, we, we should not have a system in place that incentivizes them to do that. The objective should be to dissuade teams from tanking and to stop rewarding teams from putting terrible teams on the field by just gifting them uh, number one overall picks and top five picks and top five bonus pools uh, year after year. 
Yeah, I mean, I entirely agree. I think the, the A's basically chose the wrong time to be horrible. The the Orioles kind of snuck in there um, at the last second. I, I don't think we can not mention the Astros here. They they clearly employed the same strategy, mm-hmm. and that has worked to great effect. Um, they went, yeah, they, they were just an embarrassing big league team on the field, um, and now they have been... Uh, a juggernaut really i mean they've consistently gone to the american league championship series they've got a little mini dynasty i don't know at what point uh does a team really qualify as as being a dynasty at this stage but but certainly the astros would be one of the candidates among uh contemporary organizations at this point just given what they've done since i don't know 2015 16 not sure exactly what the first year uh, of that would be but really over the last decade at this point it feels like yeah, if I think if people are going to complain about the Guardians or the Reds being a near 500 team and then having them pick in the top two, the this is the point of the yeah. lottery system. I mean, it's it's improbable that it would work out mm. this way, but I would say the lottery system worked. I mean, the Oakland A's wanted to gut their team, yep. and, and I realize, look, like in this case, they're not doing it to try to accumulate high draft picks. They're doing it for <laughs> other reasons, but sorry, you should not automatically be gifted the number one and the number two overall picks in the draft in consecutive years. And then next year, you're not going to pick in the top 10 either. Yeah. And, and and look, like not every team that has a bad record is tanking. Some teams try to win and they still end up having losing records <laughs> often just because they make they make bad decisions and those bad decisions lead to bad outcomes but we shouldn't be rewarding teams for making bad mm-hmm. decisions just by juicing them up the draft order year after year too. Yeah. I mean, the A's are clearly the team that has been impacted negatively the most by this system. And while there are certainly going to be some people that complain about it and say that it, it's not a great system because of that, I, I agree entirely with you. I think this is the system working as it's intended. Um, over the last two years, the A's have gone 110 uh, and 214. They, would have picked second uh, last year under the old system. They would have picked first overall this year uh, under the old system. They dropped in both of these. Uh, and like you said, no team can have lottery picks in three consecutive years. So after losing out on the lottery in the first two years, we're, we're expecting the A's to still be, I would imagine, one of the six worst teams in baseball in 2024. Um, they're not going to get a top six pick uh, because – Regardless of revenue sharing status, no team can can pick top six three years in a row. So do you think they're going to go all in on uh, Otani and <laughs> Yamamoto now? You know, for some reason, I can't really see them doing that. I am curious, though. I, th- I think the initial takeaway is that this does help prevent tanking. I wonder, though, if like even, even if you can't back-to-back years get a top six pick, I wonder if it'll be detrimental enough to where being bad is still it just doesn't help you at all. Like how, how are teams going to react to the reality of the draft lottery? Are we going to see teams just try to put a competitive product on the field regularly? Like I'm not sure. Maybe it, it'll just come down to like financial decisions, which clearly seems to be the case with, with Oakland. Um, mm-hmm. Well, we'll need a few years to see how it actually pans out because let's say Oakland is just bad for the foreseeable future. Uh, they don't pick top six next year. They're bad. Uh, once again, if you still get in the lottery and you have one of those top 3% chances to get the top pick, like you're still picking towards the top of the first round. It's not entirely randomizing it. Um, and the to, odds to, are like, very an, much tilted in your favor mm-hmm. to get 
those yeah top i mean picks. you might not think that this year just given the outcome i think it's probably it probably happened quicker than i would have expected for a team outside of the top 10 picking so high up but i, I am curious to see like five years from now what sort of strategic changes do we start to see with teams and how they operate when when they're not in a competitive window they don't have a great farm system like what are what are the new meta strategies that develop uh, with draft lottery that'll be hopefully a better product in the field and maybe with like some of the the tv deals going away and mlb tv like maybe you are incentivized to just try and put as competitive a team as you can on the field every year regardless which would be awesome but for some reason, I don't think that's going to be the case. Yeah. The, the one thing I would like to see is I do think the rules should be the same for everybody, whether they're yeah. a club that pays into revenue sharing or a club that receives revenue sharing payment. Cause well, you probably don't even think revenue sharing should exist. So <laughs> you uh, would want to, dis- you would want to get out of that too. I mean, that's like a larger discussion. I, I, I just think like, the teams that pay into revenue sharing, it's not even about how much you spend necessarily. It's it's more like those are the big market teams or the big revenue teams. So they can't get a top six pick in its two consecutive years, right? Whereas the the teams that receive revenue sharing, which are the smaller revenue or the smaller mm-hmm. market teams, they get they they can pick a, in the top six two years in a row, but not a third year. Yes, in a row. I would just make it the same for all teams, put mm-hmm. everybody on the same playing field, at least when it comes to the draft rules in that respect. Yeah. I mean, there are, you're already giving, t- you know, the smaller revenue, smaller market teams advantages with extra picks later in the draft too. Mm-hmm. So it's already in balance and you're not going to have perfect balance in the draft anyway. Like that's just the way it's set up. But, um, look, I mean, and, and the reason it's set up the way it is now is just because the big market, owners fight with the small market owners mm, yep. internally and then the small market teams get the edge <laughs> in this fight but if you want to make the draft that's some something that is a little bit more balanced on a multi-year basis just make the rules the same for everybody i don't i don't know whether it would be better to make it you know you can't pick in the top six more than you know one straight year or two straight years but whichever you decide i'd like to just Make make it the same for the Nationals as it is for the A's or the mm. Pirates. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would be on board with it. I do think the current system is an improvement from what we previously had because, again, I think it just – the immediate impact is like it deters full-out tanking. It doesn't reward you as much for that. So I, I'll be curious if they do make tweaks with it in the future. Hopefully they can simplify the process if they do make changes because man it is very uh, overwhelming to try and go through all the nuances of the details one yeah. other one other team that i think is interesting here is the white Sox. um they entered with a 14.7 percent chance for the number one overall pick that was the fourth best after you get beyond the three teams tied with 18.3 percent odds those teams would be the a's the royals the rockies so the white Sox are basically in Washington Nationals territory now. They're picking top six in 24. Um, I guess they're a revenue-paying club, so that means in 2025 they'll be ineligible to pick earlier than 10. No Ethan Holiday for the Chicago yeah, White Sox. Yeah, so that, that's got to feel really bad if you're the White Sox because, I mean, I don't know which teams. At this point, there's still a lot of things that can happen over the offseason. I don't have great feel for just updated rosters entering the year. But I imagine the White Sox would be a contender for 1-1 in any normal year. 
and now you're in a situation where you are picking inside the lottery which you, you might be excited about but just knowing the general strengths of the 24 class compared to the 25 class like you might have preferred to miss out on the lottery this year knowing that maybe you're going to get uh, like a top three odds chance next year for a better class i'm very curious how white Sox fans are feeling about this um because it does like i, I can't imagine they're going to be better than the sixth worst team in baseball next year they're in a bad spot um they got a rebuild on the way and i guess back to my earlier point we'll see how that rebuild is is constructed now that you can't just spot them out and guarantee ethan holiday with the number one pick next year like they're, they're not going to be picking top six they're not going to be picking top nine yeah that's i mean and in the same respect if you're the guardians are you like oh my god we got the number one overall pick or you're like at the same time are you is part of your brain like oh but we got it for the 24 <laughs> draft instead of 25 i think i think they're still got to be so fired up because oh yeah i mean it's such, a, Chris it's such a remote chance of them picking here mm-hmm. and they will obviously have never had this under the old system oh to yeah pick here and, and even next year they're probably their odds would be so remote for you know yeah picking. i think i think in general if you're a team that just happens to get lucky and move up you can't be too bummed out about it because you, it, it's almost just like a cherry on top if you're the guardians like you didn't expect to have access to the top of the class talent in general so you're probably just like all right we'll take this we we we're in a situation where we're picking one overall and you weren't the worst team in baseball like typically whoever's picking one one like yeah the scouting department might be really excited but generally in the organization you're not happy to be picking one so i imagine the guardians as an organization are the most excited to be in this spot just just given how competitive they've been in general um they were ninth uh ninth worst or ninth best odds depending on how you want to look at that entering this draft lottery and i do think thinking about them sorting through the top of this 2024 draft class is really interesting because i think all three of the players that we currently have at the top of the board have very guardians-esque traits like Nick Kurtz at Wake Forest, J.J. Weatherholt at West Virginia, and Travis Bazana at Oregon State. All of these guys, I would say, have very Cleveland-ish offensive profiles. They all control the zone at a high rate. They have really impressive bat-to-ball skills. Um, so even if we expect the board to shake up, maybe there will be some players in this conversation eight months from now who, who aren't currently. Like If it holds chalk here, I, it's really fascinating to think through which of these profiles they like. And I have to imagine their model and the way they like to target players they would they would be excited about any number of these guys um and if you're picking nine like i don't know that this class is so wide open that it's hard for me to say none of these guys would have been available at nine but i do think just the, the profiles they're picking from feel very cleveland-ish um which may be exciting for them yeah and weatherhold bazana not mm-hmm. that big of uh not that tall i should say of human <laughs> beings is there is there one that you think tilts more toward the if you had to guess the top of cleveland's board if they had to draft tomorrow who would be number one i, I kind of think it would be i think it would be weatherholt well it's funny so we we had a mock draft that was basically ready to go once the draft lottery was ordered because at, at this stage putting together a mock draft you're basically trying to just get as many actual first round talents in the mock that you can there's there's no team player connections like i'm not silly enough to think i can reach out to a scouting director and say hey who are you targeting like these guys 
these guys aren't bearing down like that at this point. You're kind of scouting the class. You're waiting to see what happens next spring. And we uh, know what the we know like what most of the order is probably going to be. Yeah. So so my process is like getting the names that I want in the first round. Uh, there are a number of teams in the back of that round, like you said, that that they're they're kind of going to be there. The the ten spot droppers, the Yankees, the Padres, and the Mets. I had to juggle around some names because none of them got lottery picks, so that would affect it. But um, I had Nick Hertz just in that number one spot because he's the number one player on our board. But when the Guardians got the pick, I was like, you know what? I feel like I feel like JJ Weatherholt would be a more appealing profile for the Guardians just based on what they've done in the past than than a Nick Kurtz. Uh, at the same time, Nick Kurtz is the youngest of that trio, so maybe I should have just left it with with Kurtz because they they really prioritize youth um, in Cleveland. But no, I think any of these guys are pretty interesting. It's left-handed uh, power too with mm-hmm. their last i mean chase the louder yep ralphie velasquez um you know they, they they don't just go for the smaller slap hitting <laughs> high mm. contact guys although they do have a big slew of them yeah and then this year they, they should be able to get both of those tools like kurtz weatherholt i think less so bizana but both of those guys are high contact hitters but they also have power kurtz certainly has a lot of raw power i think weatherholt maybe has surprising power that, that people might be sleeping on a little bit because he isn't the biggest guy but but he hits home runs he hits uh, balls with really high exit velocities like I, I think at this point i would be stunned if if cleveland was into a, a profile like jack caglione just because it, it doesn't feel like a cleveland pick but Agreed. It will be interesting to see if, like, picking at the top of the draft, I think, changes how you might operate compared to picking at the back. You just have access to different sorts of talent that you that are not typically available to you. So you, I think you have to be open-minded. You have to consider every profile, even if it's not, like, your traditional profile that you're linked to, just because you can go in any direction you want. Uh, at the same time, if the board stay similar right now um on draft day I, I think cleveland would also be in a good position where they can take the portfolio approach there's no if there is no clear number one player in the class i mean cleveland has consistently underslotted their first rounders and tried to spread money around they just have more money to operate with uh, if they've got the the number one slot value and the bonus pool money that comes with that so don't be surprised if if they're in a situation where there isn't a clear number one guy it's like a group of five seven players and they go deal hunting because they feel good about the players that maybe they can get with later picks. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point. Just just because of who they've taken at, you know, 18 or 23 or 24 or whatever they've been picking in the first round, typically the doesn't mean that's necessarily the type of play they're going to target, number one, because we've never seen them, at least in recent years, Yeah, picking at the top of the draft where you have access to a, a different type of player here. Like if the Guardians had had you know let's say they had a, they had the number one overall pick in 2022 i mean would they have taken jackson holiday number one i i could see that yeah just because he's maybe a little different than the types of players we've seen them take before um like i don't think they were taking like elijah green there like that's not <laughs> their their style but you know mm-hmm. him drew jones obviously too that year tamar um so I, yeah. I, I think just because of who they've taken before in the first round is not necessarily indicative of who they'll take at number one. And I and I do agree too. I think there's if nobody, if we're still talking here in June, July, and there's no clear number one, I very much could see them saying go, going around to those top college players, 
who, you know, whether it's those three or, or somebody else puts themselves in the mix, maybe a high school player too. Like if Connor Griffin goes bananas yeah. this spring and, um, you know, he certainly has the tools to mm-hmm. be a, you know, a single digit type uh pick overall and yeah. just saying who who wants to take the least amount of money <laughs> and we'll <laughs> spread it around later in the draft and get some more you know first or top 50 overall type talents later on yeah and i don't think it, i would put the the guardians in this like risk averse team category either even though like it, you might be tempted to just given some of the profiles you associate with them like in 2019 they took a high school right-hander and Dana Espino with their first pick they took Gavin Williams at 23 uh, out of East Carolina. He's a college pitcher, but I wouldn't I wouldn't have thrown him into that like safe college pitcher mold. There were some risk factors there. Carson Tucker, a high school shortstop in 2020 with the 23rd pick. I mean, even Chase the Louder, 16 in 2022. Uh, and, and again, literally, we could have just gone to last year and said Rafi Velasquez. They took a high school catcher. Like there is no demographic that's more risky than a high school catcher. So I think your point about oh, like factoring in some of these high school players. You don't really think about them being on the board uh, at that spot now, but yeah, if Connor Griffin comes out and he just looks phenomenal, he has like a Jackson Holiday sort of spring. Uh, I wouldn't really put the the Guardians out of the picture for a player like that, especially given some of the impact they've tried to chase in recent years. So it'll be really interesting to see what they do. This is the earliest they've picked since. I mean, really going back throughout the bonus pool era, their earliest pick was five overall in 2013. They took Clint Frazier. Um, you have to go back to, I'm just kind of scanning down their first rounds in 1992. They had the second overall pick. Um, so yeah, obviously first, first number one overall pick for the organization period. Um, so that's fun for them. And again, I think you'd be happier to get the number one pick this way than, than just being the worst team in baseball. I think where the draft lottery is going to get even more fun is in a year where we do have an Adley Rushman type talent yes. there like i mean there aren't that many well, players who ever come along like a bryce harper or a steven strasberg uh, but we know whether it's those guys or adley we're gonna have other guys who come along who are in that tier of player where, i mean it's funny uh, because last year i thought dylan cruz was fairly close to adley maybe not quite in the adley tier but at this stage, we were very happy with him being like a consensus 1-1 on our board, and <laughs> Pittsburgh doesn't even take that player. I mean, Cruz, I think Cruz still had some good competition with Skeens and with White Langford. At the end of the day, we still had Cruz number one on the board, but it's funny to think about like how convicted we felt in Dylan Cruz and the fact that the Pirates didn't even go that direction. But I agree, like if we get a Harper sort of talent, like the the celebration for getting that 1-1 one, one, one pick, and if it happens to be, it, I just imagine the chaos uh, and the amount of uh, anger that we'll see if you have one of these elite generational type prospects and some big market team that had less than a two percent chance for the one one stumbles into the that playoff pick. by like yeah. one game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be. I mean, the rigged, the uh, all the conspiracy theories would be coming out. I've I've already had people like reach out to me and say, "There's no way this lottery doesn't make sense. The odds were way too small." I'm like, "Yeah, the odds are low. That doesn't mean like they're not going to pick there though." People who work in baseball? No, or not just, not people oh. who work. Just just people who are interested in the draft. People who follow us. Like, yeah. no, I haven't had people working. Do, in, do you I mean, I'm how sure probabilities work. I'm sure the A's are going to say, "No, this system sucks." But no, I I haven't had anyone who's working in baseball like not understand probability. 
I, I do applaud MLB for the transparency of it, but I do think it it's almost like it kind of hurts them in terms of the it, it explaining how the system works and how the whole process unfolded where you also had this like redo of the <laughs> of the picks to because the nationals couldn't pick well first overall did it, they it, even explain that or was it just basically JJ telling everyone that? I don't. I don't know that they ever even said that on the broadcast. Maybe after the fact, MLB had some like. Official... I don't think. Yeah, they didn't explain it, but JJ was allowed into the mm-hmm. room to explain it to yeah. the world uh, or the whoever, whatever nerds like us <laughs> wanted to read through it all. Because yeah. yeah, like going back to what we were talking about at the start, I I do think all of the way the system is set up, it does make it less accessible for mm. even the diehard draft fans to follow. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, ultimately what matters for most people, I think is just like, tell us, tell us the order. And then now we've got a full season or a full mm. seven months ahead until we actually draft players. But we did, we definitely saw an uptick in interest in the draft in December that we otherwise normally would not have had. Yeah. And, and I think it's been very clear that MLB is trying to make the draft more of an event that's that's the reason that they paired it with the all-star game that's the reason that the set has left Secaucus. they've been doing it on site um they're trying to put more into the event to make it more of a show to make it more exciting they want it to be like the nfl or the nba draft that's like an event that casual fans of the sport are tuning into because they're excited to see so like clearly there's an effort to make it more appealing it is hard in a number of ways to make the baseball draft as exciting as those other sports we've talked about that at length on this i think that the complications like the fact that every year when we're doing the draft show for mlb network that you have to basically block out time on the broadcast to explain the process and the financials and go into the details like you're already losing a lot of casual fans who who otherwise might be more interested I think that there are ways you could make the actual draft show and and broadcast more exciting and appealing to the average fan. I think part of that is like letting the event breathe a little bit. It it really feels like they're flying through the broadcast to cram everything in that they need to cram in in 30 minutes to move on to like the other boilerplate winter meetings content that's on MLB Network immediately after. Like for the NBA draft lottery after the order comes out. All they're doing is talking about the implications and the ramifications of the results of that and the prospects for MLB's draft lottery broadcast. The broadcast ends. You immediately go back to a set at the winter meetings where you're talking about like deals that haven't happened. Like it's almost like the MLB draft lottery happens in this like alternate universe where only a a very small percentage of the sport cares about it, which is true. It is true, but if your goal is to grow it, you need to make the actual broadcast itself more appealing. Did we talk about any of the players who are in this draft class who are interesting? Like, why is Jim Callis not on this broadcast talking about these guys? Like, he's employed by MLB.com. He knows these players. Like, why is he not there talking about, like, who the who the Guardians just got access to? Why are we talking about no players? Why are we not talking? Like, there's just no, like, follow-up on what happened. Just like, okay, here are the results. Guardians got one quick interview we're out now we're going to talk about Shohei Otani what his dog's name is for the eighth time this week it's just very it's very jarring to me and I think if they want to make it more of an event like there's plenty you could do to make it more interesting can you back to uh, is there really a are they really talking about 
what Otani's dog's name <laughs> yes. is? Yes. I mean, we can we can get it. We were going to talk about here? this is I, this is part of the uh, national writers versus Shohei Otani plus fans narrative that has really picked up over the last week. There are, I think, Ken Rosenthal, Buster Olney. There have been a number of of columns written about how. Shohei Otani should not be going about his free agency process like this. He's, it's a lost but, but opportunity what is the dog? for the sport. What is, I'm getting there. It's like okay. he's he's being so private. He wants all these clandestine meetings. He's going to hold it against teams if they mention it. It's like Otani doesn't do press. He didn't do press after his MVP, and he won't even give out his dog's name. Apparently, there was some photo shoot with a picture of Shohei Otani's dog. People were like, hey, what's Shohei's dog's name? He's like, we don't want to give out that information. Really? And so, like, this is just another thing that the people are holding against Shohei Otani. Um, yeah, like, that. that's definitely... Right. I think well, it's... I mentioned that because, like, all three of the pieces that were lamenting Shohei Otani's process and the fact that it's, like, secretive, I guess. He wants to be private. Like everyone referenced the fact that he also didn't share his dog's name as just like a, a dig at him being too private for for the media, right. which is ridiculous. Well, we can table that for now. <laughs> I think I think yeah, you're right though. I think it because look like the Rule Five draft they fly through that right, mm-hmm. especially like the minor league phase. But I mean, that's it's fine. literally just an audio broadcast. It's, you're like an audio an yeah, audio call. That's that's all it that's all it needs. I I know. I mean, Jeff and JJ could be on there, and they did record a podcast that I listened to where JJ you could hear the pain in his voice that they you know only got eight out of the ten names, <laughs> and then and then Jeff is just like going like hard on the minor league phase, like even by even by BA standards, it's one of the nerdier things that uh, mm. we, we yeah. do i love it um i definitely catch the... rule five fever for like 24 hours like i'm not really interested in it I, i'm interested in the sense that i'm like reading what they write about it but i'm certainly not dieharding it like they are the day of i'm always like getting a little more into it just like i'm trying to figure out who's won i reach out to some of the people i know in pro ball and i'm like all right this is gonna be fun and then it happens and i'm like okay well that was that was not much yeah, it's. I, I do think you're right. I, I think they could stretch it out a little bit more. I don't need it to be this long thing. No, but they, it they could use they could use some more time to build a little bit of, both to build a little bit of suspense. Yeah, and to just allow you to digest what is happening given how <laughs> convoluted there are like are yeah. the mets eliminated from again a top yeah why are they when it was happening i thought the mets were going to get a top six pick because we hadn't had we hadn't seen them yet um and i had just wasn't able to process everything that happened and the fact that they could slide to 19 even though in my head the 10 spot penalty would have put them at worst at 17 like not factoring in the teams that jumped ahead of them it, it was just like I am as locked into this as anyone can be, and I didn't really, I couldn't process it in real time. And the fact that Greg Amsinger at the very beginning is like speed reading through the rules, I, I just think it like, it comes off as very rushed. And I know there are a lot of people that were asking me questions while it was going on who were confused, didn't really understand the ten spot penalties, didn't understand why playoff teams happened in the lottery, even though everyone expected them. Not to, they weren't in the lottery, but within the top 18, like they didn't understand why those postseason teams were there. They assumed they were not allowed to be in the top 18. So the fact that that happened and, and how they presented the 10 spot dropping teams or didn't present yeah, the them, Yankees, yeah. like, like everything felt confusing. And the fact that you're basically going one after the other, 
like it, it doesn't need to be super drawn out but i think like if you actually have some people on there to talk about the players and you can you can actually explain and ask some questions back and forth and try and make it seem more clear what's happening would be helpful <laughs> like it, there shouldn't be this many people confused about the process after it happens yeah especially if you are i mean like you're as diehard of a draft follower as it gets and i'm sure other people including myself or just trying to like piece it together as it was going on. If it had a little bit more space to, to, to explain that live as it's happening and then talk about, you know, I, I understand why they're referencing, Oh, this team picked in the first round last year, who they, here's who they took. But if, then if you had some time to say, Hey, here's, <laughs> here are the top college players available. Here are the top high school players available. Um, you know, we have our new draft rankings, uh, like they can just reference mm-hmm. those if they need to, or they can just, you know, I don't know if they have their own rankings at MLB or, or not right now, but it, it's obvious who the top college and high school guys are I mm. think at, at this point. I mean, you debate it some, but it's not too much of a stretch to say, hey, here's some information on mm-hmm. Nick Kurtz. Here's some info on JJ Weatherholt or PJ Orlando yeah. from high school, right? Like that's <laughs> just, just give a, a little bit more. Because uh, I, I I agree, it had like a, a little bit of a let's wrap it up tone to it. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, then it ends. You go to your different show, and it's it feels like the draft didn't just happen. So I mean, I'm always going to care more about the draft than like national baseball writers and people at MLB Network. Obviously, they're they're much more excited about the major names, the Shohei Otani news, the Juan Soto trade news. Like I get that. Like I'm I'm not saying that the draft should be everyone's like at the forefront of everyone's mind, but I do think that there are just some ways that you could maybe. If the goal is to make the draft more of an event, I think the draft lottery is part of that. Clearly, like the fact that they're broadcasting a show for it means there's some investment in trying to make it an event. And and, and again, we're talking about how or we haven't talked about it a ton, but the, the winter meetings are not quite as exciting as they used to be. And so if you have this other event that maybe can breathe a little bit of life into what's happening, clearly prospects are more popular among just casual fans of the sport than it ever has been. I, I don't think that's much of a question like so the same will follow for the draft as well. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have too many final closing thoughts on, on draft lottery, but... Um, you think the Guardians are were cranking Brad Paisley that night? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. They're all going to have to... Uh, they're all going to have to go out and buy his new album that he was uh, that he was promoting. Something about the mountains. Yeah, it's going to... I think it's going to be playing in their draft room next hey, year. Hey, you know, J.J. Weatherholt, West Virginia. He, I, I don't know if the mountains of West Virginia was top of mind for the album, but it's close. We've got a geographic connection there. Uh, was that in your mock draft? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Unfortunately, <laughs> missed opportunity. Missed opportunity for me. I, I didn't realize Brad Paisley was going to be on the show at all. So I, I should have pivoted once he was there. Got a, a few bars in from one of his songs. Where are the winter meetings next year? Do we know? I have no idea. Hopefully San Diego. Hopefully, I mean every every writer who ever writes about the winter meetings basically just complains about the fact that it's not in San Diego. So it it sounds like Nashville is not everyone's favorite destination. I mean, well, if it's San Diego, you've been to that hotel. No, I've been to the winter meetings once when it was in Orlando, and it was fun. Yeah, the hotel in Nashville is just this giant the Opryland. Yeah, this giant biodome where you just don't breathe oxygen for days <laughs> unless you make a concerted effort to go outside. It's enormous. You get lost. There's so many different wings of the hotel. I realize how ridiculous it sounds, but if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. 
It definitely does seem like it is a, a not a favored destination for a lot of people who have been there. I've never been. I can't really comment. I'm, I'm typically not someone who really cares too much about that sort of stuff. But, I mean, why is San Diego so fun outside of San Diego just being maybe the coolest city in the country, Ben? I, I would love to go to winter meetings at, at San Diego. If it's there, are you going to go? Because it's December and it's just beautiful weather <laughs> outside as it's, yeah. like, frosting on my car this morning. So It should be Chicago then. Chicago next year in December. That would be fun. Yeah, well, let's have it right here in in Boston. It'll oh be God, we need fewer things in Boston. Try, <laughs> <clears throat> except for uh, except for good Rule Five picks. Oh man, or I any, guess Rule any Five on the Rule Five. We can Rule Five trades. Yes, technically in their situation. Yeah, I mean, I would I would urge you guys to go listen to JJ and Jeff's podcast if you're really keyed in on the Rule Five. I thought it was interesting how many players that got raided from Boston and New York collectively, though. I think those are the, maybe the two teams that stood out the most in terms of Rule 5 picks overall, both in the major and the minor league phase. I mean, the Yankees had three players taken in the major league phase, so they probably weren't too thrilled with that. Yeah, I thought uh, Yeah, I thought Slayton was a <clears throat> good, good pickup, though. I mean, you know, it could be like a Garrett and Whitlock. Uh, like the 2.0 version now for them. seems like really good stuff. A lot of strikeouts, not like a big prospect profile, but, Hmm. um, you know, you're not, you know, you occasionally get a, you know, Odubel Herrera or or somebody like that who can turn into a pretty good everyday player for you, but you're more looking at players on the margins. And he's like a nice, nice on the margins pickup for them who I think can bolster the bullpen. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on Nassim Nunez being picked by the Nationals? Uh, he ranked in, inside the top 10 on the Marlins system. And then the other like notable prospect that was picked is Davison De Los Santos, third baseman from the D-backs. The Guardians took him 10th overall. Um, the Rule 5 is typically a lot of pitchers, but those were the two notable position players. And like as tooled up as Nassim Nunez is defensively, like I'm really intrigued by that pick and what role he's going to be in. This spring for a Nationals team that was really not very good last year, but also that has a really talented young shortstop in C.J. Abrams. Like presumably Nunez's best big league value is that he can play really high quality shortstop. So I'm really curious to see like what sort of usage he's getting, what role he's going to be asked to play on that team. Um, you know, I can't like dislike any Rule Five pick. The cost is so minimal, yeah. um, but I just I don't. He certainly can play defense. Um, at a premium position, he can run. So there's some value there as far as him just being able to stick around. But uh, man, he's going to have to he's going to have to develop some more power. I mean, he slugged 286 last year in Double A, and I, I, he's never had any power in his career. I, I'd have a hard time seeing him developing into a regular for them uh and then de los santos has he does have huge power uh, again like you know i don't hate taking a chance on a guy like that but he is a total free swinger with very limited defensive value um if you could if you could combine these two into one player you'd have an excellent mlb regular yeah i don't think we're there yet with technology so <laughs> that would be that would be difficult um but yeah uh that's that's yeah not big uh 
I, I suspect both of those guys will have a pretty good chance of ending up back in their uh, previous organizations. Oh, I mean, given what you think of Nassim Nunez offensively, would it be would it be a point where you would want to just like how old is he going to be next year? He'll be in his age twenty three season. Like, if you think basically he's just going to be a defensive replacement pinch runner type, is it too early to just to stick him in that role in a big league team? I mean, that that player role on the Nationals team next year would have such little value compared to like, I guess what you could think of his potential upside if you give him more time in the minor leagues to hit every day. Like, if you think he's got a chance to continue developing with the bat, you would want him hitting every day, but he's going to be in a backup sort of role on a big league team. So it's a weird sort of conundrum there. Yeah, I think I think his defensively, he's ready now from that respect, and he can pinch run for you. But you're gonna have to give him some at bats, especially if you. <laughs> he's gonna have to develop more offensively, and that's yeah, it's a good point. You're probably gonna hamper him because he's somebody who really needs to play every day to take the next step forward offensively. But uh, most likely at this point, the the power probably kind of is what it's going to be so Mm -hmm. um you know for a team that doesn't really have aspirations to contend next year all right fine like it's you know it's the rule five draft you're probably (laughs) not and and a down year or two for the rule five this year given some of the stuff that jj and jeff have talked about with the 2020 draft the five round draft and we'll never stop hearing about the shortened 2020 draft and all the ramifications from that i can't wait until we it's just a remnant piece of history (laughs) yeah fun year yeah absolutely well do you want to talk uh otani do you want to talk the Juan soto trade i mean those are the two biggest pieces of big league news i mean the soto trade has actually finally happened uh is rumored for several days we have a write-up on the site josh norris has reports on on all the yankees former yankees prospects who are going back to san diego i don't think we need to give you guys a breakdown of Juan soto um probably know what he is bringing to the table but you do have any takeaway on that trade like a a clear winner or loser or any thoughts on the prospects going back i mean both michael king andrew thorpe are pretty exciting uh in my mind Uh, at the same time i think like previously it's hard not to just like the one soto side of this trade because you're getting a hall of fame caliber hitter uh and you're pairing him with with aaron judge even outside of maybe defensive alignment questions you might have Juan Soto in Yankee Stadium is going to be a lot of fun. I like it for the Yankees. I mean, you're mm-hmm. you're the Yankees. You're getting an elite superstar player in the prime of his career. It's it is a one year rental. I don't see why Soto would sign a long term extension one year from free no. agency, especially with especially Morris. given his just the the track he's on, the historical comparisons, his age when he's going to reach free agency. Like, there's no chance that he's not getting to. The market like that's just not how Boris operates and why like Juan Soto could have like a very mediocre year and still be set up for a massive massive payday he, he's and he's still it's not like he's you know like we talked about Jackson Churio right like Jackson Churio has you know he probably has like some money in his bank account I'm sure but you know pretty good for a 19 year old uh signed for 1.8 million dollars or whatever it is mm. um you know, he doesn't yeah. have all of that. Soto's going to be I'm making sure. thirty million this year, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, the last couple of years he's made good money. So uh, this is not somebody who you know needs to <laughs> to do that. He can, yeah, just play out the next year and become a free agent. But you're you're adding a five to seven win player. Uh, if you look what he's done over the last 
three years going into his age 25 season i mean that's kind of crazy we have players running up in the prospect handbook who are <laughs> still the same age i think i've got a 27 or 28 year old in the braves at, at some point so yeah yeah I, I mean and what you're giving up is most likely i think back end starting pitchers guys who have a chance to be more than that sure but you're not parting with any foundational pieces for your future either and you're getting one of the greatest probable hall of famer in the prime of his career but obviously for just one year yeah no i mean i completely agree i'm, I'm just pulling up a few of the biggest free agent contracts we've seen from players who um, have that first year of the contract start in their age 26 season which i believe will be soto's correct he'll next year he'll be in his age 25 season and so Whoever signs him on the free agent market, the first year of that contract will be age 26. Yeah. Um, the, so the three biggest that I'm seeing right now, Bryce Harper signed a 13-year, $330 million deal with the Phillies um, the first year of his age 26 season. Manny Machado, 10 years, $300 million, again, 26. And then Jason Hayward, eight years, $184 million, uh, the first year of his age 26 season. So... I mean, I, I imagine everyone's going to be taking the over on that. I, I expect that Soto is going to set a number of records with whatever deal he signs. But are we looking at another offseason where we're going to be assuming a player is signing for $500 million plus? Like, like how big of a contract? I, I imagine, like, Soto is, is would it be every bit as appealing as Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani obviously has the two-way factor, but it's a 30-year-old compared to a 26 year old who like one of his better comparisons historically is Ted Williams. So that is pretty appealing. Yeah. If he goes out and he has another one Soto year, you know, another 400 on base 30 something home run season. I, I think he absolutely should. And I think he's a player who probably will age pretty well mm. too. He has outstanding, just an outstanding approach. The, uh, swing decisions, pitch recognition, zone control. It's all outstanding. And then it's a its a beautiful swing. It, it stays on plane through the zone for such a long time. Like you just watch him from the side. You can see his barrels practically hitting the catcher. Uh, so, you know, even if he loses some bat speed into his 30s, you can see, you know, like you, you just see the balls that go not just to his pull side, but he hits balls to the opposite field the way, you know, right-handed hitters pull the ball <laughs> that way. Uh, so even if he loses some bat speed, I think just the way his approach, his swing works, it's it's going to age well. Now, defensively, uh, at some point, obviously, he's going to be a DH. Um, he just doesn't bring all that much to the table defensively, but uh, I think even... <clears throat> Even deep, you know, into his 30s, it's hard to project, you know, obviously even a few years out, but, you know, much less eight, nine, ten years out. Yeah. Which is what a contract will probably be. But, I, but I again, yeah, the benefit, I mean, well. I think it'll be more than 10 years just given the age that he's going to be starting out. Maybe there's some opt outs that'll be included in it. But if you're getting him, if the first four years of your contract, you're still getting Juan Soto in his 20s, like that has to make you feel really great about the deal. Just on top of all of the, the skills that he brings to the table that you're mentioning that could help him age well. But off the top of your head, Ben, do you have any guess as to what Juan Soto's worst ops plus is in a single season? 
You mean his OPS his plus? His Ops Plus, specifically. I'm not familiar with that metric. Um, <laughs> like a 140? Yeah, you're pretty much dead on. He had a 142 Ops Plus in 2018, his rookie year, age 19, and then he duplicated that in 2019 as a 20-year-old. <laughs> his his rookie year when he was 19 years old? Yep, rookie year, 19 yeah. years old, 116 games too, so it wasn't like some sort of fluky small sample. It was a 292, 406, 517 line. Uh, he's actually never had an OBP under 400, which doesn't seem surprising. Like I would have expected that, but like saying it and looking at the numbers here is just insane. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, Juan yeah. Soto is good breaking. Yeah, thanks for listening to this uh, very insightful breakdown of the <laughs> Soto. But what do you think of it for from the Padres' perspective, though? I mean, uh, I think it's it's probably not how you wanted the Juan Soto trade to turn out when you initially traded, you acquired him from the Nationals, and you traded away Abrams and Mackenzie Gore and Robert Hassel and James Wood and Harlan Susana, massive haul. Um, I mean, you also got Josh Bell coming back in that package. So it wasn't just Soto, but it was a massive, massive haul to acquire him. I think rightfully so. The fact that you didn't reach the playoffs with, with Soto this past year makes it more disappointing. But I think you still have to be happy with the production he gave you. It's not like it's not like he came to San Diego and, and didn't perform. But I do think just given where the Padres seem to be financially with the holes they have on their roster, like, it makes sense for them. You're probably not too, super excited if you kind of have to give up on the Soto experiment. But I do like Drew Thorpe quite a bit. I think Michael King has a really exciting upside if he's actually able to go out and um, and pitch a decent number of innings. And even the, the pitchers below those two, who I think are like the headliners of the deal, like Johnny Brito and Randy Vasquez, I think they could be some, some decent bulk uh, innings that the Padres really need at the big league level. I'm most excited about maybe... Thorpe, just given the age, given the changeup, given the season he put together, but I know Michael King has really, really nasty stuff. Um, so I think it's probably solid for the Padres. They're getting some more flexibility in the payroll. They're addressing a, a real serious area of need on the roster. So I think it's probably fine. But like you, I think I'm more excited about this from the Yankees' perspective, particularly given the Yankees' depth um, in their just their minor league system um they can replace these guys a lot easier than you can replace whoever would have been playing in in soto's ab's this year yeah i mean fair enough well easier to get excited about juan soto i guess joining your team for yeah for the padres they didn't really focus on prospects in this deal they did upgrade their pitching for 2024 uh with michael king right away and then drew thorpe who should be ready soon um you know in, in these kinds of deals i would like to see a team take a chance on a player or players who are deeper, uh, mm. lower level players who have some more upside. But one, I obviously don't know who, you know, which players the Yankees flat out said no mm. on uh, who would fall into that camp. And then two, I, I suspect in this situation, there's an element of career risk there. If you're uh, AJ Preller where, if the Padres don't make the playoffs this year, he might be out of a job. So while you can make the case that going after players with more upside who are further away from the big leagues could be of greater benefit for the organization long-term, the, the I think the incentives here are more for management to focus on players who can 
provide value right away in 2024 and they and they do need to build out their major league depth which mm. this trade does does address at least yeah i don't know that i think maybe i would agree with you that like in a vacuum you would want to return for soto to include some more exciting lower level prospects but i do think in general san diego does a nice job acquiring those players on the international market and in the draft pretty regularly like the fact that they still have such a top heavy farm system i think is due in part because they're good at identifying those like really talented prospects like ethan salas guys like jackson merrill robbie snelling dylan lesko like all these guys at the top of their their farm system rankings yeah even more reason why i'd like to see them you know go after that kind of player because they i think do, from like a I mean, timeline like perspective was the mm. you know the grand slam of that yeah. type of i mean trade. if you could get tatis obviously you'd want a tatis but i, I think just given where they're at at the big league level, like if you're strapped for cash, you need to make create more flexibility on the payroll. And you also have now holes at the big league level. Like, yeah, it'd be great to get a Fernando Tatis prospect to put in the minors for a few years and then turn into a star, but you still have 2024 20, innings you need to fill. And I think they did a nice job of doing that this year. Like, I mean, if you don't get, if you don't get some of this, like now big league ready pitching depth or like upper, upper minors, very close, pitching reinforcements and you do get a a prospect laden deal at the lower levels like what are your alternatives to fill out your starting rotation in 2024 like there are a lot of options on the free agent market but are the padres really in play for those arms i'm not sure i mean previously maybe you would have expected them to be but it definitely seems like they're not going to be in play for some of these higher profile arms like are they going to bring back blake snell Uh, it doesn't really seem like they are uh, so you got to fill that rotation out some way. So I'm happy. I'm fine with it from that perspective. Are you are you a big fan of Drew Thorpe? I do like Drew Thorpe. I mean, I think his season might be better than his prospect status. And I do have a little bit of concern given the fact that he's a fastball changeup dominant pitcher. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it's a real plus changeup. I mean, he got a just ungodly whiff rate on that pitch at a 25% usage rate. So I think even if it's maybe not as dominant at the major league level as it was in the minors, like I feel good about just that pitch in general, his command and control. It seems like the breaking stuff took a step forward as well, even if you don't think his cutter or his like sweeping breaking ball uh, is a legitimate plus pitch. He does enough things well that I think he could be a pretty valuable back of the rotation arm. Um, and that's what they need. So I'm I'm excited about him. I would be curious to see how the slider is going to improve moving forward. Again, I think the Yankees do a decent job with their pitching development. So I, I am pretty excited about him. I'd say I'm probably more on the optimistic end uh, of the Drew Thorpe hype range. Where are you at with him? Yeah, I agree. De- definitely a plus changeup. A lot of swing and miss on that pitch. Good deception and separation off the fastball. Um you know, we we do see pitchers, especially a college pitcher who throws a lot of strikes like Thorpe does and has a really good changeup. You can pretty much breeze through uh, low A or high A, uh, which he did. You know, he's mostly in high A last year, um, but we did see him continue to have the same kind of success for five starts when he got to double A. It's not an overpowering fastball. He's, you know, sitting low 90s. He might scrape a, a four or a five. I think the slider is a, it's a solid pitch. It's, it's certainly not plus, but um, you know, it's, it's a solid pitch for him with the change up really his 
bread and butter. Um, the fact that he does throw so many strikes, I think, will will help him. I, I would pr- probably expect him to be a back end starter, but I do think there's upside for more. And sometimes we it, it cuts both ways. Sometimes there are, there are guys who we project to be oh yeah, this guy looks like a back end starter, and really he ends up just being a guy who gets a cup of coffee in the big leagues and then never ends up really sticking around. Uh, but then sometimes we have guys who we write up as likely back end starters and they end yeah. up being like number twos. Like what do we have? <laughs> Zach gallon. Uh, I'm sure he has yeah, a lot that's of back, back end. One of the guys I'm of, thinking yeah, of, right. Yeah. Is like, uh, so, but, but yeah, I, I would agree that the, the fastball change up right-handed pitcher. It's a scary uh, profile. Yeah, un- unless you have a a seventy type changeup and you're just uh, maybe seventy control with it, um, it's, which it's the changeup piece is actually kind of interesting here because Johnny Brito, his best secondary pitch is also a changeup. It's a high eighties change, um, definitely his best non fastball offering. Last year, the fact that they took Dylan Lesko, like clearly the Padres are not opposed to going f- after pitchers who are change-up dominant. Um, I wonder if that's like an organizational philosophy or just the fact that these are the players who were available and they they like them regardless of maybe a preference for secondary types. Uh, yeah, I suspect some a uh, good chunk of it is just who the Yankees were willing yeah. to part with and who's, in this case, it seems like who's ready to help sooner rather than later yeah and both randy vasquez and johnny brito had time in the major leagues last year uh randy vasquez threw 37 innings split time as a starter reliever sub three era excuse me and that time then johnny brito he threw 90 innings uh 13 starts 25 games total um not quite as good uh, in terms of the results uh, via ERA, 4.28. Both these guys, strike throwers, maybe don't have the loudest pure stuff. But again, if you need to stack innings in the regular season, I would feel reasonable about adding these guys to the organization. Yeah, now the Yankees will go out and sign Yamamoto just to... There you go. Easy replacement. Why doesn't why why every team just do that? Trade for Juan Soto and they sign should. Yamamoto. They should. Some teams should consider um, trading their owners so you can... Uh, more more aggressively pursue that strategy not the mets he's flying to steve cohen's flying to japan some some teams should not all teams oh do you think he you think he's flying american airlines or how do you think nah, he, i think that he there? probably did either spirit or frontier just so he could save up as much as possible yeah, to uh, put towards the, the bonus you think he also the, the points <laughs> you got to put the posting fee as well so you need to you need to nickel and dime as much as you can outside of that there's there's no way steve cohen wasn't flying frontier across the pacific i think uh he probably got a pretty nice plane for himself <laughs> yeah there's it's funny hearing some of the commentary talking about steve cohen like steve cohen flew all the way to japan to meet with you like okay he's a billionaire it was probably a great trip he probably had a blast like this is not this yeah. is not some hard task for him to do Have give me a billion dollars i'll happily fly to japan for to go talk about baseball come on give me a break yeah yeah, I, I've been to Japan. It'd probably way way more fun Gosh. if I was a billionaire. Where in Japan there. were you been? They had the World Baseball Classic there in uh, Fukuoka. Um, you should have gone for the high school tournament instead. Uh, I would. I would love to go to Koshin and be in a eight a.m. game with thirty thousand people screaming. That sounds or, amazing, to be honest. Yeah, it's 
it's pretty bonkers to just see even just the videos of those games. But yeah, Masahiro Tanaka was there. Um, my, I, I believe Maeda was on that team. But yeah, that was that was when Cuba had a whole. That was like one of the last years. Back when Cuba was a dominant force on the international scene. Yeah, they were still starting to kind of lose it at that point. But that well, like Alfredo Despagne and uh, Cepeda and some of the other long stalwarts were still there. When did the Cuban national team start coming to carry to play against USA Baseball in those friendly series? Do you know when that began? Because oh, man. My, my dad is, is Cuban and he started, like, I don't know when he found out about this, but... In like the mid 2010s, they started going to watch that just because you're like seeing the Cuban team and it was cool. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like he got the the worst end of like the talent coming out of the country. Uh, he missed out on the, the really dominant teams, but I don't even know if they did those friendly series back when they were really good. Yeah, I mean Gurry else would have still been there. Um, yeah, they still had they still had good players, but it was definitely not what it was in like the 90s mm-hmm. heydays where they were just yeah rolling through everybody so where where does your japan trip and in, in seeing baseball in japan rank with some of your other international baseball trips like is there a standout like this is the coolest international baseball viewing experience i've had outside of like seeing a great prospect like just the environment uh well it's totally different than the dominican republic where it's the, the countries obviously are extremely different and then the types of really? players yeah a little bit that you <laughs> just the types of players that you're seeing like you know the Dominican Republic you're going to see amateur prospects who are like you know 15 16 17 years old um younger than that sometimes obviously especially now um and then in Japan you're going to you know the big league stadiums like you're not really major league teams really aren't scouting Japanese high school players for the most part because you just they don't sign those players so why waste much of your time um but in yeah so like you go to japan and especially seeing the wbc if like it going going to those games when japan was playing it felt like being at a college basketball game where there's just oh, the fans are just jumping up and down and cheering and there's music yeah. And that just you know that you're from the Northeast there. when you use college basketball as your reference for that instead of college football. You know you're a Boston guy. Well, it's indoors. I mean, it's in a dome, so it's not like <laughs> okay. It Fair. Doesn't, it doesn't have that. How same. long until we get a college yeah. football dome? Is the real question. It's going to be there, coming soon. Does Syracuse be. have one? Do they even still have a team? I don't. I'm so I, I don't think they play football. <laughs> They've got a really huge not. dome. They play basketball in, and you can sit yeah. like not even in front of the court and look like crane your neck to, to, to see miles down in front of you. Uh, they, they have a lot of people go watch basketball there though. Yeah. That's, that's how up to date. I'm with college basketball and football now. Well, um, let's move, let's talk about Otani a little bit more. Do you have any thoughts on this narrative that has evolved in the last week or so about his uh, dog, not about his dog specifically, <laughs> but about, about the the way him and his agent have undergone this free agency because it does seem to be a hot national writer topic and you at least recently had the title of national writer at baseball america ben you don't have it now but i do so we need to have our national writer shohei otani columns on on the pod what is your what are are your thoughts on this i feel like i haven't 
I'm in this sphere of like, I've seen the reactions, the takes on the takes, but not necessarily the takes themselves. But by reading the takes of the takes, I kind of understand what people are talking about. Because yeah. I have that uh, internet long time experience of having lived uh, <laughs> on Twitter for so long that I can, I can already sense what, like, and what like the third order takes from that will be. Um, but I, yeah, I, I undoubtedly. So you basically don't need to read articles now. You just can ingest all of the news via Twitter reaction. Love that for you. I think, yeah. And I, and I can tell where the commenters are getting it wrong too, mm. even just from that. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. But There's it, a lot of inference being done here. It certainly would be better for the baseball media, especially the <laughs> people who benefit from trade and free agent gossip type stories to have Otani's free agency pursuit be more of a spectacle to to have more rumors and dope out there. But that But that's good it. for everybody, Ben. That's good for baseball. That's good for the fans, no? But but that shouldn't be Otani's concern otani should do whatever he thinks is best for him he's the one who holds all the leverage in this situation he's mm -hmm. one of the greatest players of all time he can choose his team he can dictate his terms including how the negotiations and how the meetings are going to occur so to me like he seems like an introverted person and somebody yeah. who values his privacy um tampa it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh could be could be <laughs> haven't heard them out there so maybe they're still in the mix <laughs> just lurking behind the scenes um so no I, yeah go ahead i i tend to agree with you i think it's it is pretty much just like baseball writers going to the winter meetings and like being a little disappointed there's less to write about than they previously had and obviously like a guy like Otani, it doesn't really seem. It almost feels like Otani has become a bit of a villain for certain certain media types over the really? last few months. He's like the least villainous. Well, this is why it's surprising because I I one thousand percent agree with you, and I think it's crazy. But I do think like the combination of like him wanting this to be so private, the fact that like there is a real. This happens every year with the top free agents, but until those top free agents sign, there's a lot of like sitting around and waiting for the market to kind of fully evolve. Like any any team that's in, into Otani, you kind of have to figure out if you're getting Otani or not before you can make your moves. So you, that holds up the free agency. I don't really think that's a bad thing, to be honest. Like I'm fine with free agency taking the entire offseason. I don't really need this arbitrary deadline put in place just so we can have lots of moves. Like Dude, I don't. The offseason started like. Uh, what like a few weeks ago a month yeah ago? like I, it really stems from i think comparing it to the nba which has this deadline and it's it's hard salary cap so that like it's a lot easier to make all these financial decisions knowing like what players can make what you actually can do on your team so there's this flurry of deals and activity and everyone thinks it's really cool and i like the fact that baseball is a sport where everything takes a little longer the regular season takes longer like the off season we can have a slow kind of steady off season where things are happening over a longer period of time i'm fine with that um but i do think that the combination of of that him holding up the market which is just whoever is the top free agent will do that that that's nothing mm. specific to Atani. the fact that the fact that this has been so private and like all of the gms are afraid to say anything about it and you have gms who are 
at unknown locations on Zoom calls instead of at their actual meeting in person. And the fact that <laughs> that Otani didn't talk to the media after he won the unanimous, unanimous MVP award, I really do think like a lot of those things built on top has like pissed off a lot of media types. And it's just kind of ridiculous because I, I think Otani is just a net positive on baseball. And like you, he's making perhaps the biggest decision of his life and he's entitled to do that however he wants and like you said it's not his job uh, to be a newsmaker in baseball so i i think it's really entertaining to watch it unfold um and and just seeing the various battles we've had online with with differing viewpoints and parties has been just fun to watch as someone who is not a newsbreaker and isn't any more invested in like where otani is signing than, than anyone who's like a fan of baseball but we had to talk about it on the podcast. We had to get our takes out there. I mean, some of it may be coming from his agency where maybe contrary to conventional belief, instead of having the agent spread a bunch of rumors to the media about which teams are interested to try to drive up demand, having a confidential negotiation where the teams are more in the dark about who they're competing against is going to be more beneficial to the players' negotiating power. But let's say it is Otani just wanting to keep the mechanics and the details of everything here behind closed doors. Like I think that's a very normal, very reasonable request to have. Not not that like, you know, if you're a reporter, like you know, if you're in the media and you hear that the Blue Jays had a meeting with Otani, like and you get it confirmed, yeah, hundred percent. You should go ahead and yeah. You're not obligated that. to. Yeah, you don't work for the team. Yeah, or Otani. But that's if that's how he wants his process to play out. He he really holds all the cards here. <laughs> so, uh, what what do you think about Dave Roberts basically just bucking this all and admitting that that the Dodgers had a meeting with Otani and that he thought it went well? Any any thoughts on that? He, he's like the lone person in baseball who was just like, you know, yeah, we did meet with him. I'm not gonna lie to you about it. Imagine so, if Otani's like, mm, he broke my rules, I'm not signing with you guys. I don't, I don't think Dave Roberts saying that the Dodgers had a meeting with Otani that was probably already public. Maybe at that point, I don't think it's gonna have any material. I think impact. it's one of those like, yeah, clearly the Dodgers have been a favorite in this. Like Otani is the most famous and best player in baseball the dodgers have a ton of money like they they clearly want him like everyone knows it's like a it's like a secret that's not really a secret so yeah i i'm inclined i'm inclined to not think that it'll actually affect too much but it would be funny if otani signed with toronto and said you know what like i was dead set on going to the dodgers and then dave roberts had to run his mouth so (laughs) toronto it is (laughs) do you think he gets fired for that if that happens uh i I, I suspect it will not play out that way. I'll, I'll say something. I'll say something very brave and controversial here. Oh, but this, I think this the, will be good. I think the ultimate factor in where Otani signs is going to be uh, who offers him the greatest amount of money. Mm. Um, that that said, Otani has already shown he is a bit of a. He's a bit different when he came to MLB in the first place. That was sacrificed when, a lot of money to do it when he did. Yeah, he was under the international. They changed the rules, not because of Otani. In fact, I think they changed the rules and then realized, oh, crap, like this actually affects Otani now. We didn't really think about that. And now he's going to. MLB didn't think through their rules? Uh, 
believe it or not, believe it or not, I don't think that was uh That was I, I, that was a low blow for me because I do think they've done a good job of their rule changes uh, I, I at least think, on the field, so. Well, internationally, uh, we can have a different yeah. Maybe not, not maybe not <laughs> the international market or like rules about player acquisition in general, but I think they got the the opportunity to have a hard-capped bonus system after what it was before and they were just like Oh, jumping wait, at it. Wait, you guys, the Players Association is agreeing to this? Or... <laughs> yes. Uh, signing this now. Um, but he, yeah, so he came over in the first year of the bonus pool cap restrictions instead of waiting a few more years when he could have greatly increased his earning power. Uh, there are other considerations that he seems to have, including ge- geography. Um, and in his case as a two-way player, particularly with his injury status, where a team's specific plans are for how they're going to handle him are going to matter more than just for the Yankees signing Aaron Judge and how they're going to handle him. Here's what I have a question on with that specific point, though. Like, I've seen a few people talking about how, oh, like, the Angels should have an edge on other teams because they... They gave him everything he wanted in terms of usage, in terms of how he was being handled, in terms of role. Like, did he seem is, real thrilled with the way well, the Angels? But also, him? is like, is that not just a starting point for every team who's interested in Otani? You're getting the best player in baseball, arguably the best hitter, and like an ace caliber pitcher when he's healthy. Is every team who wants him not going to do the exact same? Like if you're going to commit this much money to him and then you're going to be like, you know, actually we want to use you in a role that's slightly different from what you prefer. Like, I, I don't know that that's very serious for people who actually want to sign Otani. Well, I think if you're Otani, it's about, you know, who who do you already know? What environment do you know? Who do you trust? These teams could tell you whatever they want and then uh, things can change if 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 he were already with an organization where everything was set up perfectly for him, uh, you know, he, he likes the area, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm. And everything that's going on with the organization. Yeah. That's probably something of a comfort factor, but I don't necessarily know that that's the case with the angels. Like it didn't seem to me again from afar that, Oh, he was uh, everything is set up exactly the way he likes it throughout the entire organization. Um, I mean, look, like ultimately, again, if if the Dodgers are going to offer him $580 million and the Cubs are, say, $100 million below them, like, what do you, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> like, he's, I, I think the the money, even though there are other considerations here, I think the money is going to be the most powerful. Uh, so would you still be leaning Dodgers at this point? I think so. Um, I mean, I'm not doing any real reporting on this so yeah uh, but Neither it just seemed, just yeah seemed like the best fit yeah right and now. apparently well we've had some reports that say like he's set to make his decision before the end of this weekend so maybe as you're listening to this podcast we actually know where otani's going and, and this whole conversation will be uh meaningless but i am excited just it'll be exciting to see where he goes how that shakes up the league if it does shake up the league I, like i would be very surprised if he went back to the angels because it does seem like winning and being on a contending team has been a, a very important factor for Otani. And there are a number of teams that are just set up better to have success in the near future and, and even going further than a few years. Um, but even after that, like after Otani signs, I imagine there will be a number of um, 
kind of players that, that fall into place. We get a lot more action that, that starts to happen. We get a lot more trades and signings for national writers to write about. Um, and we can put the Otani narrative behind us. But Well, I think, yeah, that's probably sort of some of the uh, griping comes from, too, is there just the lack of movement at the winter meetings when the winter meetings are really no longer needed to facilitate uh, so, baseball transactions. So what do you do with the winter meetings then, Ben? Do you think they're necessary at this point? Like, is it something? Yeah. Cause there's so many other things that go on at the winter meetings. Hmm. They, they should still have it. It still serves a, a lot of different purposes, but it's a, it's a legacy event in terms of where it used to be great to, a great benefit to be able to bring in so many people together to help move transactions along so that you could communicate more easily and instantaneously. But in 2023, it's just not really necessary. So the winter meetings, I, I think they can be really helpful for agents because they can try to put pressure on teams by giving them this feeling of uh, deadline and the artificial pressure that comes with it but you think you think agents would like a deadline better than teams i i think it's the winter meetings can allow them to create that feeling mm. of it and create this you know heightened emotional state for club executives that can lead to more impulsive decisions i think uh, teams would rather have a deadline because i think agents like to drag it out no, I, what I'm saying is I, I think the agents try to make can try to make the winter meetings feel mm -hmm. like it's oh you gotta you gotta oh. make a decision now you gotta make gotcha. a move this is the time to do it but there's no real reason why we need to have transactions happening from December third through December sixth mm -hmm. as opposed to any time yeah. the rest of December or or January or February um, so I don't think it's you know, there, there's so many other things that go on in the winter meetings that aren't like publicized, but are important to to have there, and they're important for organizations to have and bring everybody mm -hmm. together and all sorts of people from all different walks of life in baseball. But um, as far as using it to move along transactions, uh, it's just not. It's not. It's not 1999 anymore. <laughs> Kind of in the opposite regard, do you think that the baseball should have a, some sort of dead period over the offseason where you can't have any moves and everyone can just kind of take a break? Or do you like the fact that it's just kind of like free-for-all? That would be interesting. When would you just like over the – between like Christmas and New Year's? Yeah, I mean it always feels like there's almost like a, an unwritten dead period. Like not a bunch happens then because everyone actually wants to enjoy the holidays with their families. And so uh, Jerry DePoto, I mean Jerry DePoto, AJ Preller, Jerry DePoto and yeah. Preller might not, but like a, lot, a majority of baseball officials yeah. probably well, want to. Yeah. <laughs> for for DePoto and Preller, they probably just think it's a it's where they can get a competitive advantage by focusing on baseball while their peers are are not. But making trades, <laughs> Anthopolis is probably gonna do something on. <laughs> Christmas Eve. Oh gosh! Only if the player is uh, willing to give a one percent of his salary to the Braves Foundation, though. <laughs> Christmas donation. So yeah, basically for that to uh, to <laughs> to prevent actors like a, a Depoto or a Preller from just constantly making everyone feel the pressure to keep working and making deals. Do you think there would be any value to a dead period? I don't know if other sports have it. I don't really care or follow them enough to know, but. That's something that like is kind of the opposite of what people are talking about with the winter meetings. 
uh, like putting up some arbitrary deadline to encourage action. But I wonder if the opposite route would actually be even more beneficial for the, certainly for people working in baseball. I feel like yeah, it's I think it's it not really, not for fans. Like for do fans want to in terms period? of the public interest. I don't think that would help. But in terms of a quality of life issue for people who work in uh, front offices, yeah, I think that would. <laughs> Most of the changes post. that have happened in the last few years have been really beneficial for the quality of life of people working in baseball, though. So the real serious, uh, serious thing we're suggesting here. I think every scout that I asked in like the fall of like, oh, like how's your, how's your summer? Everybody said sucked (laughs) new draft schedule or i guess at this point i don't know if it's new anymore but yeah pushing the draft date back is popular with uh maybe one person in the entire (laughs) uh who works for in baseball and his he's the one who makes all the decisions so (laughs) yeah well i mean i don't think the summer was ever like a, a period of relaxation regardless of where the the draft is on the calendar like it's just a matter of like what you're actually juggling and what you're prioritizing at certain points. But it has been nice actually reaching out to some people in the game in December on the scouting side and saying like, hey, what are you up to? And some people are actually getting a bit of a breather because I don't know that we've talked about like December too much in terms of what you're doing on the calendar and scouting. Um, but at least on the amateur side, like there are still some scouts who are running around and doing in-home visits with priority players in their areas that certainly... Uh, so information that is valuable that you can acquire at this period, um, just getting better feel for makeup of players that you're going to be scouting. Um, but largely, December seems to be the calmest month of the year for scouts that I'm talking with regularly. Uh, and it is nice to just reach out to those guys and not feel the sense of like urgency and stress for the job that they almost always have. Yeah, I think internationally, this is also there's a, there is a big tournament in the DR next week but um at, after that not much going on people like to just it's just the month of december shut things down most of the academies are probably mm-hmm. shut down uh, like the team academies i should say are will be shut down at this point like they're done with their dominican instructs or any other work that's going on down there so a little little opportunity for a breather and then obviously january 15th kick uh, the new signing period off so at what stage in the calendar for you do you feel like is your most like relaxing time? Obviously None. right now for us is is prospect handbook. I do feel like like from Christmas to New Year's is always a period where typically the prospect handbook is behind us. We haven't fully like turned the page to college yet. Um, but January very quickly you kind of have to start getting ready for college preview stuff for the magazine. Uh, and just looking ahead to the spring season, but it, it, so none, none is the answer for you, Ben. You're, you're yeah, the, the signing period starts on January fifteenth, so I'm not really God. taking any downtime there. So uh, I would say, and you have a young I'd child too, so <laughs> you don't really get much rest at all these days, Ben. Uh, not not too much, but <laughs> this is, it's a uh, good reasons for not getting much rest. Sure. Uh, anything else you want to touch on in today's episode? we got a couple questions we can get to as well before we get out of here. But if there are any other topics or uh, points of interest you want to address here, by all uh, means. Do you, do, do you have any guesses on Otani's dog's name? Or, or what is the spiciest take on that that's out there? Uh, the, the spiciest what, take it? I've seen is just like, why haven't you told us the name of your dog, you asshole? <laughs> <Is there really? laughs> I mean, it's basically just thrown in as like, 
Otani is so private he wouldn't even tell us the name of his dog. <laughs> like, like it's not a real criticism, I guess. It's just like a piece of evidence for him being like not a spectacle on the free agent market. Do you think somebody's going to dox the name of his dog? Oh, 1000%. <laughs> we'll find out the name. We might find out the name of his dog like report. at his press conference when he's like putting on the uniform. He might bring his dog there and tell everyone the name. That'd be fun. Well, what if his dog's name is like Mookie? That, that, that could be, would yeah. Just see, run away with that. Maybe yeah, you can't. You can't leak that information. Your leverage is just going away. If that's the case, his dog's name is Vladdy Junior. No, his his dog's name is Randy Arosarena. <laughs> I'm really pushing the race, uh, the race train here. Although he's going to get traded, right? Arosarena. Yeah, that's why I thought you were bringing his name. Yeah. Up. Couldn't think of any rays. <laughs> well, who's uh, maybe Christopher Morrell will be. Uh... His, his name is Tyler Glass. No, oh, he'll be traded too. His oh. name is Jeffrey Springs. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> All right, let's get into some questions then get out of here. Um, we have one from OK Martin on Instagram who asks, who is the best 2024 prep player in Southern California? Well, we do have an updated draft board where we've got kind of the, the list of players in that order. Currently, our, our top ranked Southern California prepster is Bryce Rayner, who's a shortstop and a right-handed pitcher out of Harvard-Westlake. Um, so we have him in the first round at this point. After that, we've got uh, Derek Curiel, who is quite a bit lower on the board now than where he was entering the summer, still right in kind of the fringy first-round range. He's an outfitter out of Orange Lutheran High School in Southern California. And then I think just including in the conversation, uh, Levi Sterling is a right-handed pitcher. That's at another SoCal powerhouse, Notre Dame High School. Uh, he could jump up the board next spring, but those are kind of the top three. And I would imagine Bryce Rayner is probably the top player in the area for most scouts at this point, just given the summers. Um, but I'm curious if you feel strongly about one of these three or someone that I didn't mention, Ben. Uh, yeah, I, I always went back and forth on Curiel and Rayner. I think Rayner maybe has more, certainly more physical upside than Curiel. Curiel just makes everything look so easy. Mm-hmm. It's a, It glides around center field, easy swing, a lot of contact. Great, uh, great approach. I the, yeah, I, I think the question marks with him is going to be how much how much damage, how much impact is there going to be? Because uh, there's a lot of good foundational qualities to build on. Uh, but how, you know, is he a you know, eight to 12 home run type guys. He going to do more damage than that. Um, that's probably where the polarization will come from on him. If he comes out, like, let's say he goes out, especially him. Like we mentioned Connor Griffin before, if he has a big year, mm. what it could do for him at the same time, Connor Griffin's going to be playing his high school baseball in Mississippi. Do you know what's They're- interesting about this too, to go on a quick tangent, the top three Please. high school players we have, Connor Griffin playing in Mississippi, PJ Morlando playing in South Carolina, Caleb Bonimer playing in Michigan. Like the three top high school hitters on our board are all coming from very much non power, like hotbed areas where there is going to be a lot of skepticism on the competition. I mean, typically there are a number of hitters that you feel good about from Florida or from Texas or from California. And there certainly are those players, but it is kind of interesting that all three of the guys that we have kind of in the top tier right now 
which again, I don't think there's a ton of separation between those players and some of the high school hitters further down. And we do have Kate Aaron B day uh, right below those guys in Texas. But I, I thought that was kind of interesting that we had such a, such a diverse group of states that are going to have competition questions. Right. But whereas with Derek Curiel, it's the opposite, right? He's going to be playing some of the best high school competition mm -hmm. in the country, in Southern California, uh, in you know one of the top leagues for high school baseball in the country. So he's going to be facing, you know, it's still high school pitching, but relatively good competition, certainly more so than some of these other guys we talked about. And he's going to have about a billion scouts watching him throughout the year. So uh, if he goes out and he's hitting, you know, seven, eight home runs, whatever it is, just looks awesome, then, yeah, I could see him uh, moving up. And if not, then, you know, the opposite, right? So um, I, I think that could be – I think he's certainly still going to be in the mix to be the number one player in SoCal by the end of the year. Uh, and then, yeah, Levi Sterling, I think, is somebody who could uh, – he, he has a lot of traits that I've really liked for a long time. Uh, so we've, we've had him ranked pretty high for a while, even though I think people maybe, especially like the, you know, the younger players get confused of like, well, why is this guy ranked behind that guy when, you know, this player throws – 96 or 98 even 99 mm -hmm. <laughs> whereas you know this guy's throwing 92 93 but is ranked higher uh because it's you know the guy throwing 98 is all effort very little chance to start mm -hmm. doesn't have a breaking ball whereas levi sterling one he's he's really young for the class he'll be he 17 on draft day could basically be a 2025 based on age it's you know it's a good fastball for his age it's you know low 90s touching i think 94 throws a ton of strikes, really athletic, good delivery, uh, six foot, what, six, three, six, four, more physical upside can really spin a breaking ball. Um, can, you know, feel for a changeup too. It's, it's, it's a pretty diverse mix. It's a ton of starter traits, ton of projection arrows pointing up where I could see him. I could see him coming out, adding a couple ticks of velocity this spring and as you know, as hard as it is for high school right-handed pitchers going in the first round, mm. I, especially with the draft the way it is this year, I think he has the upside to to end up there if the if you know if the velocity ticks up, which I don't even think it needs to this spring for mm -hmm. me to still be really high on him yep. as a pitching prospect. That's something that maybe could come later on because again, he's still going to be 17 years old uh, next year, but. Um, he's somebody who I'm, I'm really high on in this, just in this, not just in Southern California, but in the class as a whole among these high school arms. Yeah, I would agree. And I think especially on the, the high school pitching side, like there is not a ton of separation or a clear cut consensus on the top arms in the class. And I think there'll be every opportunity for players to jump up the board and maybe establish themselves as that pitcher. Like currently we have either Bryce Rayner or Cam Caminiti, depending on how you view Rayner as a hitter versus, versus pitcher prospect as the top on the board. Like the separation between the guys behind him, including Sterling, I don't think is significant at all. Uh, and like you said, there's a ton of opportunity for him to improve his stock in the spring. And there are a ton of traits to really like about him now, even if he doesn't change at all compared to what he did last summer. So hopefully we get some, some clearer ideas of, of how these pitchers are lining themselves up. But I also think like, 
kind of in contrast to what you're saying with Curiel and his competition in Southern California for for Sterling and every other high school pitcher, the competition really doesn't matter as much in terms of the quality of the evaluations you can get uh, as a scout because largely you're scouting how the body works, how the stuff looks, and you're, you're expecting most of, the, most of these guys to dominate their competition regardless. But it's not it's not the same as evaluating a hit tool where you need high-quality hitters in the box to know if a slider is a good pitch or not. You can kind of just see with the, the velocity, the movement, uh, his ability to use the pitch. Um, it's just much more of like a in a vacuum you're seeing him whereas with the hitter you, you you need the context of what he's facing more any any socal sleepers maybe a little bit deeper down are you like one guy for me would be i don't know if he's sleeper or not but um kate townsend who um another right-handed pitcher socal uh you know six two more projection lefts um another guy where it's not like you know he's not throwing 97 98 miles an hour uh, right now but the you know up to what 94 uh or so but really good feel for spinning the ball uh, not the same level of pitchability or consistency of strikes that you see from levi sterling but mm. um, when he snaps the breaking ball off um you know i, I think it'd be two two really good breaking balls or, or maybe he just goes with one uh long term but um, really, really innate feel for mm. spinning the ball, 28, 2900 type RPM, breaking ball really sharp has the potential to be big, big swing and miss with those, with that stuff. Yeah. Another one I like is uh, also stick on the mound. Uh, maybe not quite as deep of a sleeper as yours. Cause this, this player is currently on our top 100. That's Ethan Scheifelbein, a left-handed pitcher out of Corona. Uh, he's a UCLA commit. I think he's He's got some of the better, just pure command control pitchability in the class. Um, he is uh, towards the younger end, not quite as young as Levi Sterling, um, but it's a pretty easy delivery, uh, pretty low effort. Their starter traits, he's been up to 93, 94, more in that like upper 80s, low 90s range. So if he's a guy who adds a little bit more physicality in the offseason, maintains the pretty silky smooth delivery he has and that control maybe adds a little bit more distinction to his two breaking balls that can blend together at times. Like I think his starter traits and command I really like, and he could be a guy who pops up if he adds some more physicality. It might be like the third best prospect on his own high school team. Cause now in that, that team has for 2025, they have Brady Ebel now shortstop mm. Seth Hernandez right-handed pitcher <laughs> yeah is he even uh, the best pitcher on his team <laughs> right like and these guys are both 2025 they're two with you know both top five players yeah. in that 25 some class. of the and, some of the 25s I've actually been able to see a little and both are pretty exciting particularly Hernandez for me he's a lot well, of fun those guys and and Billy Carlson who's a mm. shortstop right-handed pitcher going to Vanderbilt it's like Hernandez it, is so it's funny that Carlson is like the last of that group you mentioned because I feel like several months ago in the spring like billy carlson was one of the more famous underclass socal players in in the 25 class and the fact that he's like not immediately the first guy just speaks to the amount of talent on that team well he's still one of the very highly <laughs> rated on our 2025 <clears throat> list i mean there's, mm. i don't think there's a i mean it's he's, he's at least in the conversation as the best defensive shortstop in that 2025 high school class uh, and makes a lot of contact to bat speed, um, a lot of things to like there. So yeah, mm -hmm. probably pretty good when you have 
three of the best 2025s <laughs> on your country. And then, oh, yeah, Ethan Scheifelbein and uh, I think Josh Springer, the catcher for 24, is a pretty interesting guy there as too. So no, uh, no shortage of talent there. No, not at all. So good question from OK Martin. Hopefully that gives you a few names to keep in mind. Um, we got another one from Anonymous on Instagram who asks, where is Junior Caminero on your personal top 100? Um, for me, I think he's, uh, again, I haven't gone through the process of lining my players up, but I have to imagine he's going to be somewhere in my top five. Uh, just thinking through the players who are going to be there, I, it would be surprising to me if he was outside of that. If he is, it's going to be like six or seven. Um but yeah, he would be among the very elite for me. And Ben, have you thought through your specific order at this point yet? For me, that happens kind of once we're deeper into the prospect handbook production cycle. Um, but it's, it's going to be like Jackson Holiday, Jackson Chorio, Dylan Cruz, Junior Caminero for me, something like that. Yeah, still agonizing over it. I, I'm, it's hard for me to you got time not go with Jackson Holiday at number one, but then. Yeah, those guys you mentioned, uh, Wyatt Langford, Evan Carter. <laughs> the the uh, Evan Carter versus Wyatt Langford one is going to be agonizing for me because of what Evan Carter did in Pro Bowl, but also like how high I am on Wyatt Langford's hit and power combination. <laughs> I really just like Wyatt Langford a ton. Yeah, it feels wild to – and I like Langford too. I would have Carter ahead of him, but um, – it's it seems kind of it, it's a it's a much deeper group of players than I think than usual who fit into this top five conversation. There are like ten guys I think who fit into the top five, and so that's going to make us feel bad about who is like where Paul Skeens fits for me. I'm going to think I have him too low, just given what I think of Paul Skeens, but also the fact that there's so many other hitters that have tools and great defensive profiles and track record. Like there's only so high I can push the pitcher in that list, and I know I'm like speaking to the choir here with you on that one. Yeah, but with Camonero, I mean he's in the big leagues and looks like a guy who could hit thirty, maybe forty plus home runs. The offensive track record is, I mean it's it's a better offensive track record, frankly, than Churio. I mean he's. He doesn't do the things defensively and and athletically that Churio does, but like the the hit and and the power are all right there. I mean, I'd say the power is even above Churio's, and Jackson Churio certainly doesn't lack power. So, um, and there's more of an upper level track record compared to Dylan Cruz or Lankford. Uh, not that you know, I can't really fault those guys for they just got drafted mm -hmm. this year. Langford certainly hasn't done anything to diminish his status with his with his own performance. Um, but what Caminero's done at Double A is extremely impressive. Uh, but then <laughs> Evan Carter, uh, it's hard to be more impressed than what he did in his time in the big leagues, uh, and then obviously a very good track record in the minor leagues too, and a lot of things he brings to the table, both uh, in terms of his on-base skills and on the defensive side too. So uh, I don't have a firm answer other than probably somewhere between two and five. And like, we haven't even gotten into, you know, like Ethan Salas probably belongs mm -hmm. in this picture too. He's, I think he, you know, he's obviously he's got to double a, but I would still say he's further away than 
these other guys we've talked about, but he has a chance to be a, you know, a franchise catcher, perennial all-star type. But um, I don't know if, if I'm the race, <laughs> I would certainly be uh, trying to lock him up to a mm-hmm. long-term extension scene with the Brewers just did with Jackson Cheerio. And I mean, Camonero was a guy Cheerio signed for $1.8 million. Junior Camonero, I think his bonus it was like eighty seven thousand five hundred, if I remember right, and he was from the Dominican Republic. He played. It wasn't like he was some under the radar player who uh, the Rays found in the middle of nowhere at some you know no name program. He he was with the you know he was with Mejia that Mejia top ten program, which uh, as far as like. Uh, you know, high profile programs. It's probably one of the top five, at least at that time, like him, Jaime Ramos, uh, Nietzsche, who had, you know, Juan Soto and Ellie De La Cruz and uh, Rudy Santin, uh, who's, you know, since passed away, uh, Banana, you know, some other programs who are certainly up there. Uh, but like, you know, Mejia probably had, I don't know, 10, 15 or more players who signed for more money just in his program that year alone <laughs> than Camonero. He, he played in the Dominican prospect league in showcases where, where they came to the States. So like everybody saw this guy. He just wasn't, no, nobody really saw this, including the Rays, I'm sure, or excuse me, the guardians who the signed guardians. him. <laughs> Definitely the Rays. They didn't sign him, uh, but including the guardians who traded him for nothing, basically. Um, even after seeing what he did in uh you know brief spurt in pro ball he hit the ball uh, too hard for them yeah like so that. so i'm i'm sh- I, you know i would imagine he would be amenable to uh, <laughs> uh a nice contract uh extension that would guarantee him a lot of money so uh but that's if i were the raise i'd certainly be looking to do that hmm. All right, so that's a good non-answer for you there for, uh, from yeah. us on, on Camonero. So apologies for that. But hopefully that gives you at least some idea of like how we're viewing where Camonero is as a prospect and his competition and the overall level. Like It's a pretty small range, I would imagine him to be in on, on the top 100 for anyone on their personal list and on uh, what eventually becomes the, the top 100 for Baseball America. So expect him pretty high up there. Um, that's all for today folks so thank you guys for hanging out thanks for listening to us chat about baseball thanks for supporting baseball america if you do so Uh, if you don't maybe consider a subscription you will probably like a lot of the other content that's on the site and on all of our other various podcasts uh, on the baseball america main feed Um, wherever you get your podcasts and listen to this show you can listen to that one as well Uh, ben anything else before we close it out uh, just getting to finish the prospect handbook right now. Uh, if you haven't ordered it yet, uh, I am very biased, but I <laughs> highly recommend it and recommend ordering it to directly from us. Uh, it obviously does help us more uh, if you buy it directly from us as opposed to Amazon or, or wherever else. Uh, but you also should get it shipped uh, faster if you get it straight from, if you order it from us as opposed to somewhere else. But wherever you choose to, purchase it from we're obviously greatly appreciative of uh of of you guys for doing that yeah so thank you guys again uh for ben i'm carlos we will see you next time